0: Do you have, or have you ever had, one of those friends or family members, colleagues, who you think, they are never going to become a Christian? Somebody who knows the gospel well, they've heard it, you've talked to them about it, maybe they've even come along to an evangelistic event and they've asked their questions, you've discussed it around the the table, but yet they, they reject it and they will keep on rejecting it and you think... They're just never going to become a Christian. Whatever the reason may be, I'm sure that there are probably a few reasons. Maybe it's they're going to reject it on an intellectual level. They can't agree and accept the Bible. They don't think it's reliable, it's old, it's ancient, it's history, it's in the past. It's not real, it's just fairy story. Maybe they're convinced that science is now... Prove that there is no God. It contradicts faith and so therefore it's superior and that must be followed. Maybe people are objecting to Christ because of morality and the type of life that you Christians live. It just seems boring and restrictive. But I have to give up to live such a life. No way, no thank you. Maybe they, they simply have lots of questions. Hard questions, complicated questions that you can't answer and, and you don't think anyone else can. And they're just not going to become Christian. I remember when I was at university, I got to know the student union president of Bangor a little bit while I was there. And sometimes he would come along to see you events. And he'd be there, he'd listen, he'd ask his questions, he'd ask hard questions, and he'd get into discussion, but he was always resistant. He'd never be accepting <laughs> of things that you'd say. There'd always be something that, that for him proved that Christianity wasn't right. he was clever, he was ambitious, he was S.U. president. And I remember thinking, this guy is never going to become a Christian. He's one of these people that, you know, make you a bit frustrated. Now, of course, there are people who don't become Christians. Thousands of people who haven't trusted in Christ. And unfortunately, there will be more who will not trust in Christ in the future. But sometimes we can be tempted to think that people aren't going to become Christians just because of who they are. Or because they're, or well, they're just too bad. They're too far away from God. They're too atheistic in their thinking. Or something else. And we find it hard to imagine them becoming a Christian. We find it hard to imagine them one day accepting Christ, joining you in church, singing the songs, hearing the sermons. Well, in Mark's Gospel so far, we have, Jesus has predominantly been teaching and interacting and healing Jews. Jesus is a Jew. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's come to bring salvation for the Jews. He's come to be their king. He's lived and ministered amongst these people. He's travelled around the Jewish regions of, of Israel. And we've not really seen much of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. In first century Judaism, there was this an obvious, clear distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. One that was... Obvious. They were enemies, they didn't associate with one another. Both groups looked down on one another and despised one another. The Jews particularly, they felt very proud because they were God's people. They were arrogant, they felt superior, particularly in spiritual matters. After all, they're God's chosen people. They had been promised this king that would come to reign forever. They were the privileged nation. They were not like those around them. So they were self-righteous. They believed themselves to be good. They were accepted by God because of their heritage, their history, their laws. But then last week, we saw that Jesus had rebuked the Jews because they put all their trust in their external laws and their external rules. They believed themselves to be clean because of what they did on the outside and because they didn't eat certain foods. But Jesus tells them, Verse 15, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, with what comes out of the person, that is what defiles them. Jesus later explains to his disciples that it's the heart that matters. We have a heart issue, a heart problem. That's what separates us from God. It's from the heart that our sin comes from. And so the disciples may be thinking... Well, the Jews think they're keeping themselves clean before God because they're they're keeping external rules and laws. But actually, really, in their hearts, they're just as filthy and as dirty as the Gentiles. If Jews are therefore unclean because of their hearts, are they not just like the Gentiles? Are we not seeing here that both Jew and Gentile are actually in the same boat? And so our question this evening is, Jesus begins to move into some Gentile area of Israel. What about the Gentiles? Is there room for them in God's kingdom, in God's plan? Let's have a look. Over the last few chapters, we've seen Jesus and his disciples followed by a large crowd. And they've tried desperately, but but failing to find somewhere quiet and peaceful where they can rest sleep, get food but they keep getting ambushed by the crowds who demand healing and demand his attention and Jesus has encountered the Pharisees which we looked at last week at the beginning of the chapter and so now Jesus takes his disciples away from Galilee, away from the crowds, away from the Jewish regions, out into the Gentile places as we see in verse 24 he heads up to the vicinity of Tyre, so this is up in the north West coast of Israel. He probably didn't go into the city, but he went to the places near about it. Somewhere, hopefully, that's quiet, where he can rest, somewhere where he can teach his disciples, share with them. And so he enters the house, and he didn't want anyone to know that he was there. But even though Jesus has mainly been in Jewish territory, people from the north have actually come down and have seen Jesus. If you cast your mind back a few weeks ago to chapter 3, people from Tyre and Sidon, they came down to see Jesus. They'd heard about him. They came to witness for themselves. And so people up there, they knew of this guy. Maybe they'd seen him themselves. And so when Jesus arrives, unfortunately he couldn't keep his presence secret from them. Verse 25. Have a look at that. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. Ah, Shucks. It's happened again, hasn't it? No peace and quiet just yet. Jesus has to deal with another person. But we have learned so far that Jesus cares, that he's compassionate and that he takes time for people. So he's able to deal with this woman quickly and move on. And it looks as if she's the only person, so hopefully it won't take too long. So you could imagine that the next next thing that we're going to read in Mark's account here is this. And so Jesus looked on her with compassion and said, Woman, your daughter is healed. Go in peace. But we don't. We read about the woman. This woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. Jesus had healed a woman before, so that's not the problem. The real issue that comes to the attention is that this woman is is Greek. She's Gentile. Greek in terms of language and culture, but born in Gentile places. She's a non-Jew. She doesn't belong to the house of Israel. She's, She's not part of the promises of God. She's not following the God of Israel. She doesn't come from the family, the heritage that stems back through history, all the way back to Abraham. Her native language is 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 different. Her morality is questionable, her spirituality probably doubtful. So how is Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, going to respond to this Gentile woman? Well, he engages her with in conversation. Jesus, this this Jew, this religious leader, the Messiah. He talks to her. A normal teacher of the law or a Pharisee, they probably wouldn't even go into that region, let alone talk to a Gentile woman. Culturally, this is just unacceptable and unlawful. Jews, as as I said earlier, felt superior. They were God's chosen people. The Gentiles were unclean. They were enemies of God. They're not included in God's promises. So in a way, they're second-rate human beings. They don't associate with one another but they do condemn anyone who does. But Jesus speaks to her. What is he saying? Verse 27 First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Hmm. What is your response to that? Maybe it's well, of course, she deserves it. The right response a Jew should give to a Gentile. You Gentiles have no rights in Jewish things. Stay away. Maybe your response is one of surprise. Well, this is Jesus. Did he really say that? Even if there is this Jew-Gentile issue going on, the Jesus we've come to know seems different than this. He's full of love and compassion. Last week he talked about foods being clean and and we're starting to think, well, maybe there's something in there for the Gentiles. What does Jesus mean by what he says? Well, I think we have to maybe correct a few misunderstandings that you may have when you come to read what Jesus says. When he calls the woman a dog, he isn't using the normal word that a Jew would use for a Gentile. Jews call Gentiles dogs. They refer to them as these Street dogs, scavengers, dirty animals. It's an insult, it's a word of of contempt. But Jesus is using a word for a house dog, a pet. And do you notice that he doesn't completely reject her plea? He he says, First, first of all, let the children have what they want. So Jesus is speaking to her in kind of like a little parable in a way. The children, they're the Jews. The dogs are the Gentiles. They're both in the same house, in the same world, but yet one gets priority over the other. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He's the son of David. If you read Mark's and um, Matthew's account of this story, the woman recognizes that. She says, son of David. Salvation is for the Jews first. Any Gentile inclusion that we will know about, that doesn't come until later. But Jesus knows the full story and, and he sees this woman's faith. We don't know what she knew, what she what she believed, but but somehow she's she sees there's something different and unique about this man and, and she she longs for a bit of what he has to offer. And so Jesus, in a way, is testing her faith, testing her understanding. And she does well with her re- re- response. She says, Lord, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She calls Jesus Lord. She recognizes him as, 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 him, as the Master, as, as Lord, as who he is. She recognizes his authority and she also recognizes her complete dependence upon him. She's humble knowing of her position, knowing that she's a Gentile, knowing that she's not a Jew, not part of, of God's great plan. But yet she wants some of it. She's willing to accept who she is to be humble and be part of part of that. She accepts that the children should have the bread first, but, but yet she says, surely there's a little bit of what you have to give that, that I can receive too. Let me eat up the leftovers that fall on the floor. She understands that, the first of all, salvation is for the Jews, for God's people. But surely the Gentiles can receive some of this too, can't they? We know as you read through the rest of the New Testament, the Jews do accept Jesus, but not all Jews. And most Jews would reject him. And so therefore the way is open for Gentiles to be included in God's salvation plan. And it spreads out to the whole world. But right now, in our context, she's humble. She knows her place. She knows she's unworthy, but yet she seeks Jesus' mercy. And Jesus says, For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And so she went home, found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Gentile woman, someone completely unworthy as far as a Jew was concerned. Perhaps the disciples, who we don't see them in this passage, but no doubt they are with Jesus, watching what's going on. What on earth are they thinking? Jesus has shown mercy, he's extended his hand to this outsider. And we begin to see that the gospel is not just for the Jews. It's not just for a certain type of people, or a certain people group. It's not for those who consider themselves worthy. It's not for those who are born into the right family. It's not for those who are good and clean, It's but it's for the sinner. It's for the outsider. It's for the unclean person. It's for you. And it's for me. How do we come to God? How do we approach him? Are you like a Jew? Someone who's proud and expects Jesus to show mercy and help? Do you consider yourself to be clean by the way that you live your life and You're different from those who are outside, those who who are non-Christians and who live bad lives. Do we think that because we go to church or we're brought up in a Christian family, that we're not like our non-Christian friends, that, that Jesus will accept us? He will come to us. The temptation for us as Christians is that the longer we are a Christian, the more we trust in our relative cleanness and our relatively better lives, perhaps. When we stop coming to God in, in a way that we are dependent completely upon him, we don't no longer come in complete faith, but we add a bit of our own works to it as well. But the truth is that we are Gentiles, we are, we are sinners. We're by nature outside of God, outside of his mercy. We're unworthy of his mercy. But even a Jew themselves, as we have seen, they still need Jesus. They still need the cross. And so we see that no matter what our heritage is, no matter what our backgrounds, our experience, no matter what our good works, these things, they don't add to any of of us deserving God's mercy. Like a Jew who probably would walk straight past this woman, God too has every right to walk away. Or unclean outcasts, foreign enemies to God. But yet we see here Jesus accepting such people. He welcomes them. He meets with them. He, he, he meets with outcasts. And because of his death, because of his resurrection, he's taken that uncleanness away. He took it upon himself. He died. He died to wash away our sin, to remove those things from us. Take away the dirtiness. Jesus became sin so that we could have the righteousness of God. He took on the loveliness, the shame, so that we could be made right, so we could be free from condemnation. If you're not a Christian here this evening, perhaps you may think that Jesus wouldn't accept you. Maybe you think that you are too unclean, you're too far away from him. You're not of the right pedigree. You're not from the right background. You know your life is far from what Jesus would want it to be and so therefore you think he's not interested in you. Well, Jesus has shown us tonight that that he is. That you're exactly the right person. You're the type of person that Jesus is interested in. He knows that we're unworthy. There isn't anybody who is too unworthy doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile from a Christian family or not. We're all in the same boat. But too, as Christians, though we have been saved sometimes, well, we sin often, don't we? But sometimes we have sin in a way and a certain thing that really affects us and we think, surely I have messed it up for the last time now. This morning, we were looking at shame in the morning service, in the morning sermon. And perhaps there's something that rang through your mind then that you think, yes, this is something I've done that Jesus is not going to accept me again. I'm just, I'm too unclean now. But we need to be like this woman, recognizing our complete unworthiness, but yet fling ourselves upon Jesus and His mercy. This woman only wanted a the crumbs of what Jesus has to offer. But really, Jesus wanted to offer us so much more. And he wants to offer us so much more too. Faith is completely dependent upon Jesus and his mercy. And as Christians, we need to keep on calling on God. Keep coming to him in faith. Resting on his mercy as one who needs it every day. We never go through a day where we don't need God's mercy we're always welcome and he gives us his time he shows us his mercy and he brings salvation that's what Jesus does for us what about those people out there what about those friends, family, colleagues that we thought about at the beginning Just like in this first story, a woman seeks Jesus' help for her daughter. She comes on behalf of someone else. And so too, in our second story, we see a group of people coming to Jesus on the behalf of another man. This man who's deaf and mute. We read in verse 31 that Jesus moves on. He moves out of the vicinity of Tyre and he makes his way back down to the Sea of Galilee. But he still remains in Gentile areas. And as he approaches this place, these people come to meet him and they bring this deaf and mute man to Jesus and they say, put your hand upon him. They want him to heal him. This poor man, he can't speak properly so he can't come to Jesus himself. He can't um, shout down the road after Jesus saying, wait for me. He can't communicate because he can't speak that well. Perhaps he didn't even know Jesus. Maybe he didn't know that he was there. He can't hear, so maybe he didn't hear the commotion of people coming around. I wonder how much he even understood of of Jesus, of what he had done in other places. How do you communicate with someone who is deaf and who can't speak properly, especially back in, in those days? I'm sure they didn't have the sophisticated sign language system that we have today. There's no pen and paper that you can quickly jot down your notes this man would have lived in a complete silent world. He would have lived purely by sight. And yet here is this miracle worker in town, and so his friends bring him. They no doubt have heard Jesus, of course, so they bring their friend because they want him to be able to hear, to be able to speak. But isn't it interesting to see and to read what Jesus does, how he approaches how he engages with this man. I'll read it again, verse 33. After he had took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat, touched the man's tongue. He looked up into heaven, and with a deep sigh, said to him, which means be opened. Again, another strange thing, you might think. What is Jesus doing? Why is he doing this? We know that Jesus, so far in Mark, is someone who cares for people. He cares for the individual, and he meets them where they are. We saw that with the bleeding woman in in chapter 5. He stopped to ask who had touched him. And now this deaf man, he gets the complete attention of Jesus. good thing about taking him away from the crowd is the last thing that you want to hear for the first time is probably a noisy crowd. But I think what Jesus is doing here is he's just simply communicating with the man and he's telling him what he's going to do. And he's trying to see whether the man wants this and to see whether he has faith. He doesn't use words of course, but he uses his actions. And so he puts the his fingers into the man's ears. Indicating that this is what you wanted, so your ears to be unplugged so that you can hear. He spits and touches the man's tongue. For some, particularly in the Gentile area, spitting would be associated with some healing rituals, and maybe the man would understand the connection between spitting and healing. And he touches the man's tongue, saying, look, is this what you want to be, to work? And so you could hope that Jesus looks looks at him and the man's nodding and says, yes, open my ears and fix my tongue. These are the signs of faith. So Jesus looks up into heaven to show, look, this is where the power comes from to bring your healing. And he sighs, perhaps a, a way of saying a prayer, perhaps showing sympathy And then he speaks in Aramaic, possibly the language that this man is going to then speak once he can. He says, be opened. Actions that seem very strange, but they make complete sense when you think of a man who is in a completely silent, deaf world. To see the actions, yes, this is what I want. And so, at this, the man's ears were opened, verse 35, and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak plainly. We live in a world where those who don't know Christ, spiritually, are like this man who is deaf. People are spiritually deaf. They're lost. They're they're out of touch. And they're people who need to hear Jesus, to meet Jesus. they people who need us to intercede for them. they people who need us to bring them to Christ. The Lord has given us the wonderful privilege and responsibility of, of doing just that. He's placed us in areas where we are in contact with those who don't know Christ. And, and we are Jesus' words and his actions as we, as we live for him. And we bring them to God in prayer. The unbeliever who is spiritually deaf, deaf to the gospel, can yet still hear the gospel, see the gospel, through your words, through your actions. So as we live and speak for Jesus, they see, they see the, the relevance, they see the difference that it makes, they see Jesus in us. Of course, it's Jesus who opens the deaf ears. It's him who comes and meets people and he meets them right where they are because he knows them. He knows your friends. He knows your family members. He knows your colleagues and neighbours. He knows the issues that are standing way. Those reasons that we think are never going to become Christians, he, he knows them. He can answer the hard questions. He can remove the doubts. He can bring people to a point of saving faith. And so Mark is showing us, as we see it in this passage, that the kingdom of God is for all people. It's for the most unworthy outsider. We interact and we meet with various different people, don't we, from day to day. People who have different beliefs, different opinions on Jesus. People who have different standards of of morality. And sometimes we, we do think that they're just never going to become Christians. Maybe we think they're not worthy enough to become Christians. That does cross our minds too. And we think these people are just too far from Jesus. They're never going to come to Him. Their questions are too difficult. Their lifestyle is too immoral. But yet Jesus accepts all. And He's able to change the lives of all types of people. We ourselves have been saved by Jesus. Just because we're Christians, it doesn't make us better than anyone else. We are just as unworthy as others that we meet. He's unplugged our ears. He has shown us Jesus. And so let's bring our friends to the Lord in prayer. Let's beg Jesus to come and open their ears. Let's pray for them day by day. Let's pray for them by name. Let's take care and show compassion as Jesus does. Let's look upon such people and see their spiritual deafness and long for them to want to come to Christ and to have their ears open so they may, they may hear Jesus and come to the truth. The people who saw what Jesus had done to this man they were overwhelmed with amazement. They say he has done everything well. He even makes deaf hear and in mute speak ironic that the words that these Gentiles say are sort of a paraphrase of words of Scripture themselves. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 say these words, speaking about the Messiah that is to come. Then, he, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus can change lives. Remember the student union president I told you about. He's a Christian now. Unfortunately, I don't know the whole story and how it happened. But he is. He came to Christ. It's a wonderful encouragement when it's someone you know that has overcome the difficulties and has become a Christian. It's also a, a a rebuke to my faith. My trust that God can change lives. Jesus welcomes poor people. So let's bring all people before the Lord.